how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're bottom. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. From the very first moment she saw Annie, she knew what she wanted to do. Courtney Kane got her start acting and singing before moving into screenwriting, playwriting, and now creating her own shows. Today she's best known for creating the Disney Plus reboot Doogie Kamaloa MD, the Doogie Hauser reboot, and running for major shows like Fresh Off the Boat and How I Met Your Mother. In her latest show, the story follows Lahela, a teenage wonderkin, juggling her high school life with an early medical career. In this interview, Courtney talks about positive limitations in playwriting, why writer's rooms are sacred, advice from Danny Zucker, writing with the heart in mind, and how she uses notebooks to craft personal stories for the silver screen. I grew up obsessed with movies and TV and musicals. And from like the very first moment I saw Annie, I was like, I want to do that. Like that is everything to me. And I think when you're a kid, all you see is the actors. And so I was like, I'm going to be an actress. And I did community theater and I sang in the chorus and I did everything I possibly could. And I wasn't very good at any of those things. And it was devastating because I was like, but that's what I want to do. And during, as I sort of was in high school and college, I sort of enjoyed writing, but I was like, novels were so long. I took journalism and like, I couldn't be accurate about anything and creative writing. So, and like poetry was a little too lofty for me. And so there was no real place for me. And then one of the last classes I took in college, I went to University of Pittsburgh, was a playwriting class. And it clicked. It was, this is all the things I love. It's everything I want to do. It, I felt like I had found what all of the things I like put into one sort of bucket. And they were like, here's your diploma. Good luck. And so I moved to LA and I was like, I'm going to write for 
I was, I'm going to write in t- TV and movies. Like I can write TV and movies. This is great. So I moved out to LA and I became a cocktail waitress and was like, I remember driving by the Fox lot, like on Pico Boulevard and being like, it's right there. Like it's so close, but so far away as I'm driving by in my Honda Civic. And I, someone, my playwriting teacher at Pitt suggested I apply to a graduate program. And so I applied for playwriting um, because at the time I was still thinking that maybe I would do theater. And I also just felt like every, I got the really good advice, which was playwriting will translate to movies, to TV. It's just good script writing. And I ended up getting into Carnegie Mellon's School of Drama and I went and got my MFA in playwriting and they do a really great job of helping you figure out next steps and get a job as a PA, work at an agency, get your foot in the door, experience. Like it's very practical in that regard too. And so I have what I call my false start when I came out to LA and I was a cocktail waitress for a year. And then I did it again and I fared better. What do you think, are are there some positive limitations on playwriting? Like just you're, you're really leaning on dialogue. I would assume more so there's less settings. Like what are some of those benefits that kind of you, you figured your way into as you were learning this? Yes. I think what's really good about playwriting as a training ground is playwriting is all about what is this about? What are you saying? What is your voice? What is your point of view? You know, and in any good play, this is what the characters are saying, but this is what we're really exploring. And this is what we're commenting on. And so I think that's what makes good writing. And I think it's especially important in TV and movies and the thing that you know, resonates with all of us. You know, Squid Games is a great example. It's, you know, taken the world by storm and it's so riveting, but it's about so many things, you know, greed, capitalism, desire, you know, ego, it's all of these things. And so I think playwriting is a great starting point to get you thinking about here's two characters, here's what they're saying, but what am I saying? Like, what am I looking to explore? And so I think it can be very applicable. Do you think people miss that on maybe the early drafts? Do you think acting helped you understand kind of those two layers of writing? I think so. I think it, I think it definitely, I think it definitely helped. Um, you know, and I think just being life helps, you know, age helps, I think as you, you know, get older and you've had more experiences, um, you know, and all of this, like it sounds cheesy, but really it's all about examining the human condition. You know, that's what we're all doing. We're sort of, this is what it feels like to me. And someone else is like, hey, that's what it, it, it's like when there's an earthquake and it's so satisfying when you turn to someone and you go, you felt that, right? Meanwhile, like all the, the 
everything off is off the walls. Like the person clearly felt it. There was an earthquake, but like another human being going, yeah, I felt that. Like whenever there's an earthquake, I always go on Twitter and I love it. And people are like, whoa, feel that? And I'm like, yes, thank you. And so I think, uh, yeah, I think we're all just sort of in search of that understanding. And, you know, it's so gratifying when you read something or watch something and you're like, oh, yes, yes, that is, that that emotion is what I feel often too. And so I think we're all just, kind of junkies in search of that fix. You had, you had a couple of credits before you got on How I Met Your Mother, but that show was really, there was several good sitcoms at the time. Um, how did you guys talk about some of maybe the pathos of that character? Cause it is like a story of like, this guy's looking for love for, for years and years and years. Like, how did you talk about some of those underlying themes and mix them with the comedy? Yes, you know, How I Met Your Mother was one of, the best experiences of my life, you know, working with that cast and Carter and Craig who created that show. I I often joke, I started at How I Met Your Mother 27 and single, and I left nearly 40 with two kids. (laughs) So like, it was such a big part of my life. And what's great and is that the characters sort of grew along with all of us, you know, Marshall and Lily were having children as some of us writers were having children and we were writing our experiences. And one of the best things that I learned from Carter and Craig working on that show is every story we broke started with someone's real life story. Mm-hmm. You know, one time this happened or one time I was at this party, you know, and I woke up with a pineapple or whatever it was, you know, it was, always started in some germ of truth. You know, one of my, one of my favorite things about how I met your mother is there's an episode about a cockamouse, which is half cockroach and half mouse, which is something I swear I saw in New York city. And there's a group of people that don't believe me and think I'm insane or think I'm like, like it was just a big cockroach. And there's a group of people who were like, I totally believe that there's such a thing as a cockamouse. And so it all sort of started from this, this, this realistic place. And I think one of the things that I love about how I met your mother is there's so much heart in it. You know, there's funny jokes and Neil Patrick Harris's performance is amazing. And all those actors, their performances are amazing, but at the end of the day, there's something that feels very true about it and very real. And it was always, you know, it was always like, what's this about? Like, what's the heart? What's grounding it? What's keeping us connected to these people? Hmm. Do you see like a natural long arc with a series like that? Because, you know, the famous thing is like, if the character grows, it's a comedy. If he doesn't, it's a tragedy. But a lot of sitcoms, the point is the character changes very slowly at best. You kind of see all the characters got to a good point at the end of a show like that? Yes, they did. I will say, I don't think any of us at the time knew it was going to go on for so long. Right. You know, it, it was in, so that creates its own level of challenges. But we really did, you know, there was, there was growth within all of those characters and they changed and they grew but they still did keep in that same, you know, sort of wheelhouse too. You know, How Much Your Mother was sort of a different kind of multicam, you know, cause it's a traditional four camera show. We didn't shoot in front of a live audience, but we did have the canned laughs mm. in the show. 
but it really did try to push the boundaries of that and it became more serialized. And it was also at the time when TV was changing a little bit, you know, we started airing on like, I think it was like, was it Netflix or Hulu? I, we were, we started streaming as we were like doing it. And so that oh, right. got us new audience members. And so, yeah, it was, it was a blast. So how did that kind of change? So that was multi-cam, but it had the, it had that feel to it. We're fresh off the boats, very single cam. It's also a very singular voice. You're kind of bringing something new to, I think it was ABC audiences with this, um, different race family than the typical white family, I guess yes. you'd see. So what were some of those conversations like to make that comedy? That was an exciting time because I remember we were going to be a mid season show and we, they were going to, we like found out we were like going to be burned off on a Tuesday night after like a, like a pranking shit. Like it was like somebody, it wasn't Ellen DeGeneres, but it was like right. somebody had like a, show like a hidden camera I'm gonna prank you show and we were gonna go after that show mm. and I remember we were all like oh so like we're dead <laughs> nobody's <laughs> gonna nobody's gonna watch this right. okay got it like let's make 13 great episodes and we'll have fun and um it was it was a delight and I remember we also did feel a great sense of responsibility because it had been like 20 some years since Margaret Cho did mm -hmm. All American Girl. Mm -hmm. And there was a perception that if this didn't work, or at least if this wasn't good, that nobody would try it again. It would be like, well, it does, it, it, it doesn't work mm -hmm. was the sort of mandate. And so when the sh we made a great show because we sort of didn't have anything to lose, you know, what, what are we going to do? And I remember waking up the first morning it aired and seeing the ratings. And it was like, oh my God, like people sought out the show, people watched it. And then like the next week, more people watched it. And I remember we were all like, wait, for real? Like America's watching the show about the Asian family. Is this for real? <laughs> we were all like blown. We were all blown away. It was, it was really it was really, really exciting. Did you see kind of a, an introduction to that audience? Because I think around the same time, Goldberg's is kind of doing the 80s. You guys are kind of doing the 90s. Was the 90s the like, you know, the common factor, I guess, of like bringing in multiple audience members and that type of thing? Maybe. I think, uh, yeah, I think maybe that was a part of it, that there was something like nostalgic about it. Um, you know, I also think there was something nice and clean and gettable about it. Like, it just seems like a funny idea when you hear like a Chinese family, a Taiwanese family from like DC moves to Orlando to open like a steakhouse. You're like, all right, that, that seems fun. You know, what's, right. what's going on there. And then they cast Paul Shear in the, at the steakhouse and he was great. And so, and Randall Park is so wonderful and Constance became like a breakout star. And so yeah, it just, it just kind of, it just kind of worked. I think, I think, did you work on, um, no, you were like kind of in the middle. Was it harder on that show? Cause it's really about, it seems like it starts off about little kids, but then the kids grow up a little bit. Is it harder to kind of shift those storylines and like, you know, it, you it, it is, it is. Like, I right. remember there was one season, I can't remember, like we would write these stories and then like, 
the next season, Ian, the little boy is like a foot taller and he's like, where do you want me to stand? And you're like, oh God, <laughs> you know, like you're not the little, you know, right. the, the story about you can't find your favorite beanie baby. I don't know if that's going to ring is true right, right. now. Right. Um, it was, you know, those boys were all such wonderful guys. And it was so amazing to see them grow up, you know, Hudson who plays, Eddie is now a freshman at Harvard and this like he's like six feet tall and he's right. this you know strapping confident intelligent young man and you're like what this little boy you know and so it's been really fun to see them grow but yeah it was a it was a challenge as you know because the story sort of changed but it, it kind of makes it exciting too because it opens up you know, other possibilities about like, you know, dating or relationships or now they're in middle school and, you know, those different things. Mm. But yeah, it was a great experience. So tell me about, um, so you mentioned kind of using real life stories in, in both of these examples, at least as a starting point. So I know this new show is, is a lot based on your real life, at least with your parents and some of those things. Do you keep like a journal over time or is it more about what stands out to you? Like how did some of that originally shape the show? That's a great question. I have like various, I don't have like a classic journal, but I have at any given point, I have like 15 notebooks going <laughs> that are like right. all different sorts of things. Um, I also think my husband makes fun of me. I'm also very good at just remembering snippets. Mm. Like if there's like a feeling or an emotion I have, like I'll remember it to a T and it sort of is like filed away. And it's a, it's kind of my superpower as a writer, like to just have this like catalog of like, oh, this emotion or that thing. My husband makes fun of me. Like I'll be like, oh, that's like this time. Remember at work, so-and-so did this and you were feeling that. And he was like, what, when? <laughs> no idea or like remember your mom she like did this and he like is like I don't remember that at all um and so I think I'm lucky in that I have I have those sort of snippets I also my family you know my dad is very much like the Benny character in the show and my mom is very much like the Clara character I kind of grew up in a sitcom a little bit. Like my family is their own variety of weird and crazy. And so I think that helps a little bit. You know, I was born in Hawaii and then I grew up outside of Philly. And so, yeah, I've just kind of, and my, my mom is a bit of a ham and is always looking to like amp up the drama and comedy everywhere. And so I think I a little bit inherited that from her. It's really interesting that you remember maybe someone else's emotional point of view from, from years earlier. Have you, have you seen that is kind of a personal question, but have you seen that in yourself and seen like growth? Of, like I used to feel this way about this type of scenario. Have you seen things like that? Well, see, you're assuming that I have that sort of clarity when it comes to myself. Oh, so it's more <laughs> third part. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. I have more clarity when I, when I, I can analyze my husband's feelings fantastically, but right. mine, I'm like, what, what are you talking about? Right. Um, no, I mean, uh, I am tapped. I think I'm, I am tapped into like the emotions of people. I guess it's like an, I, I feel like I, I, I feel like it's cheesy to be like, I'm an empath. I feel people's emotions. <laughs> like, I don't know that I do, but like, I am 
oddly, like if I walk into a room, I think it's the thing that interests me. Like I'll immediately tap into like where folks are at and like where, like what's the, what's the dynamic here? It just sort of interests me. And so I don't know, maybe it's, I think it's just like a weird trait that I've found a way to turn into my livelihood. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Like I'm introvert and then you might look at being sensitive as negative, but what it really means is you're empathetic of others and you can pick up on these things in the room. I'm curious how that might shape some of your conversations in the writer's room. Like how do you go deeper when talking about emotions and characters and those type of things? Yes. You know, one of the, I love a writer's room. It's to me, it's like such a sacred place and such a wonderful place. And, you know, writers, we sometimes laugh because like we forget, like we get so spoiled because we spend, you know, eight, 10, however many hours a day it is with like 10, 12 people who are so funny, who are so good at crafting stories, who just like always have a take. You know what I mean? Like writers have a take. And then sometimes you leave the writer's room and you're out with everyday people they're telling a story they're yammering like there's no point to it like they're just telling you something with no like perspective to it or like you writers comedy writers especially inevitably will make some like off-color joke and then everyone is horrified you know (laughs) where it's like in a writer's room everybody would like yes and it and build and so being in the room I think is so special and one of the things that I learned early on, um, I was very lucky coming up. One of the the first show I got staffed on, Danny Zucker, who wrote on uh, Modern Family for a gazillion years. He had a Twitter Twitter war with like Trump. Uh, He pulled me aside and he was like a, he was like the number two of the show. And he pulled me aside and he was like, this is everything you need to know to be in a room. Like the room is a sacred place. This is like, and I remember I was like, okay, okay, like, but I was so grateful that he took the time and kind of took me under his wing. And, you know, it's interesting. Like when you build a staff, there's folks who talk all the time, which you want because you want to keep the energy going. But then you also need folks who are like quiet and take a beat to figure out what they're going to say. And then when they say it, they're like a sniper and you're like, yeah, we're doing that. Um, the most important thing is you can't have negativity. You can't have anyone who's rolling their eyes or, you know, you, you, anyone who tries to convey to everyone what they think of someone else's pitch and and it's not good, like get that person out of the fucking room. Like it needs to be a total safe, safe space. Um, I thought one of my low moments as a showrunner, I was doing Doogie. It was the height of a pandemic. I have three kids and one of my daughter, we we were sending our kids to school. This is before anybody is vaxxed and they shut down my daughter's class because of a a kid had COVID and she was a close contact and we had to like re-break a story And I like came into the room and I was like, in my head, I was like, I'm going to charge ahead. We're going to do this rewrite. Like, here we go. And I came into the room and I saw there were like 12 sympathetic faces and I just burst into tears, (laughs) like uncontrollable tears. And I was like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And like, I was like, it's Zoom. So it's like show, like crying on camera. Like nobody can do anything. I was going to like log out. And I was like, I wasn't going to say anything, but this is what's going on with my kid. It's like, I'm doing the show. Like, it's so stressful. 
And uh, it was funny because I thought it was like my worst moment as a showrunner. And separately, so many people later have said to me that that was their favorite moment because they were neat. Like, it was like, oh, like you're like, you're being honest about like what it is. They were like, and we all felt like we were like, oh, that's what we're here for. We can help you do this rewrite. And we got that. Like, they were like, we felt needed. And so it was oddly a moment that kind of brought our whole staff together and taught me a lot about show running, which is you don't have to be the like, I'm the boss, I know everything, I'm in control, <laughs> you know? Like you do have to be in control and do all those things, but it's okay to be vulnerable and honest, especially when you're looking for this room of people to be vulnerable and, and honest. So right. um, yeah, that was, a, that was sort of a, a crazy moment. <laughs> Has anything changed as you kind of moved? I mean, how I met your mother, let's say PG-13 type material, you kind of moved to maybe younger audiences and now this is on Disney+. Plus. Um, I would assume that the, the writer's room is still a bit of a free-for-all, but like when do you kind of rein in like, you know, what's appropriate for kids and, and then kind of think about the, you know, information plus entertainment aspects of something like that? Yeah, you know, it's all, it's all balance, especially being on Disney+. Plus. Like there were so many jokes where we were like, like writers would pitch funny things and we'd be like, can we say that? And we're like, I don't know. Like, let's, you know, let's, let's see. And the goal for me, I feel like as a showrunner, especially, and anytime you're writing anything, like you need to have your target of what you're doing. And my target for this was, I call it like old fashioned 80s comedy, mm -hmm. where like in the 80s, like there was one TV in the house and everybody sort of watched it. And it was like a little too racy for the oh. kids. You know what I mean? Like right. they made, like I showed my kids Goonies recently and like they say shit every other <laughs> word, you know? And so, but also the parents probably wouldn't watch a thing with all kids, but because right. they're watching it with their kids, it's like, hey, this is fun. And so our goal was always 80s, comedy, you know, maybe a little racy for the kids, but, you know, and a little younger for the parents. And, you know, we had some jokes, like there was one time there was this joke that like Walter comes up out of the surf and he's like looking all buff and handsome and water coming off of him. And Lahela's best friend, Steph goes, I think I just got pregnant. And we were like, hey, that's great. We're like, can we, and we like, I remember like putting it in and at every stage I kept waiting for someone to say something. And then I'm watching it on TV with my three, my three daughters. And Steph goes, Hey, I think I just got pregnant. And my husband was like, babe, <laughs> we're, with, we're with our kids. And I was like, yeah, I kept, we, I guess you can say it. I don't know. <laughs> funny. Is there in a situation like that? It sounds like it's, and Disney plus is a little different than what we usually think of with Disney. They are going a little bit further, I guess, and, and catering to that type of audience. For something like that, I mean, this is not a straight up comedy. And I think you tell creative screenwriting, you view it almost more as a drama. Are there points where you have like a couple lines in mind for a scene like that in case it doesn't work on shooting day? Yes, yes, yes. We have something that we call alts, mm -hmm. which is, you know, Nanashka Khan created Fresh Off the Boat and dear friend, I love working with her and she's a big believer in alts. So like anytime you have like a joke area, we'll do like two or three different jokes and try them out. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have them in your back pocket. And so, and a lot of times it's not always the funniest joke that wins. Right. Like sometimes you'll be like, we have a tonnage of sex jokes or we have a tonnage yeah. of, you know, he's not the brightest jokes. And so it's, 
you know, oh, the story has become warmer. We want a more heartfelt moment. And so it just, it's nice to have those in your back pocket for editing. Um, and it's also, you know, the show as we build it out became more dramatic and there's, there's many more jokes written than ended up on TV. And it's interesting, like as we're doing the show, anytime a joke felt like somebody was making a joke or it, we would pull it. And so I think the, the, there's nothing worse. I feel like when you can feel like the show trying to be funny as opposed to just like be the show. Right. And so our goal was very much be the show. And I think we, you know, we have, we take our moments, we take our shots, but it, it was much more joke heavy when we started and tonally it just rhythmically, you know, this is what felt like the right pace for us. Do you see like after working on, on these shows, and some other products, do you see a natural tone that you gravitate towards? Like I spoke with Jonathan Ames a while back and he writes more like self-deprecating humor as opposed to like Judd Apatow, who's like mostly insults. Like, where do you kind of see this like heartwarming realm? Do you see like a subgenre within what you're doing that you fit in? That's interesting. I think I would say, um, I, I think what I gravitate towards is funny with heart mm -hmm. that there's, you know, some truth to it. There's some real to it. Um, I always think the funniest jokes are like character jokes where it's right. somebody's not like making a joke, but they're just sort of being themselves and they as a person have a funny point of view. You know, I think Jessica, the mom on Fresh Off the Boat played by Constance Wu, she was always so fun to write because she didn't make jokes. She just, her point of view on everything was so funny. And when people laugh, she was like annoyed by it. Like, what do you, you know, like, what are you, what are you talking about? Right. Um, and so, yeah, I would, it, I would, I would say like heart, heart funny, but that's, what's great about a writer's room is you get all the different sort of perspectives. And then, you know, I think just one kind of joke in a show would get boring. And so right. it's nice to have these different to have all these different voices, you know, anybody who writes a script and then if you give it to a room to punch it up, it's always so much better because there's different kinds, like there's jokes that are just aren't the kind of jokes I pitch or somebody else pitches, but you get them all sort of in there. So I usually like to kind of ask at the beginning, if you were trying to break in today, how might you um, pitch screenplays or some of those things to try and like start a career today? What advice might you pass on to those young writers? My advice would be to make noise however you can. And I think, you know, I've seen a lot of folks, stand-ups who sort of get attention that way or get some notoriety that way. I've seen folks make little videos, you know, be on TikTok, be, you know, put them up on the internet, like just make your stuff. I've had, I've seen people who write really good screenplays and get themselves on the blacklist. And I think there's a variety of ways to go. Um, and then I think, you know, it's the old fashioned become a PA, work at an agency to just get your foot in the door. So you can say to people, here's my script, here's what I'm doing. And you can learn, you know, this business has become tougher and tougher, I think, to break, to break into it. But that being said, people break in every day. 
And so it's not impossible. And I think the folks who really want it and who are in a financial position that enables them to go after it, I think that's another piece of it. Right. You know, you, you can make, you can make it happen. It is possible. It's not easy, but it's possible. Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.